Welcome to Mint, the podcast exploring the Web3 creator economy. I'm your host, Adam Levy, and every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be showing you what's happening at the corner where crypto meets creators by interviewing Web3's top creative entrepreneurs, collectors, and founders. This episode is brought to you by the composable and decentralized social graph Lens Protocol, who's ready for you to build on so that you can focus on creating a great experience, not scaling your users. Guys, I've talked about this on the podcast before. We as creators need to break through a new paradigm of social networking apps that we control rather than them controlling us. Lens Protocol isn't a social media app. It's designed to let Web3 social apps bloom. Own your content, own your social graph, own your data. Lens Protocol is the last social media handle you'll ever have to create. Now, this is where it gets kind of fun. Listeners of the Mid Podcast are legible for claiming a Lens profile. Go to the show notes and fill out the survey in order to get allow listed for a Lens profile. You need the secret passcode also linked in the show notes to submit the form, which is valid for the next 24 hours. So go create your profile, go find me and follow me. I'll see you there. This episode welcomes Eric Caldron, founder and CEO of Artblocks. In this episode, we talk about his transition from importing tiles for 19 years to starting Artblocks, putting together the platform's curation board, his favorite NFTs, how he utilizes on-chain data, NFTs on Tezos, music NFTs, and so much more. I had some microphone issues with the software I used to record this episode, so apologies for the AirPods-like quality. But regardless, I think this was a really, really great episode. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on a part of season six. How are you doing, man? I'm good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thanks. Thanks for making the time. I'm super stoked to, to have you a part of the season. Um, obviously, you're, you're a well-known name in the community. And uh, I've been looking forward to talking with you. I think we, we messaged about two months ago or so. Um, I don't remember. Oh, were we competing I, over I some little nouns? Yes. Yes. I think it's, uh, I think that's you, what it was. How, you did, won how that, did I forget that? You won the crown. <laughs> and I think I it was the, the first crown or one of the first crowns or whatever. And I was like, Oh my God, that's yeah. Um, it was, it was you against Eric Reffel, um, against, uh, Andy from, from now to Sarah. Andy, and, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, uh, Max Power was in there who, you know, maybe every now yeah. and then, I guess I didn't realize he was bidding and he'd text me and be like, if you really want it, I'll let you have it. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> damn it. But I mean, ultimately we built some really good sub 1000 collections. And to me, I, it was really important to have sub 1000 little nouns. And I think it's also going to be really important to have sub 10,000 uh, edition mm. little nouns. I mean, of course it's an open edition that goes on forever, blah, blah, blah. But um, there is like some kind of, kind of like with generative art and kind of with art books, there is like a, a captured window of kind of what the algorithm is capable of doing. And I think that once you start pushing the boundaries, those you start getting maybe not exact collision collisions, but you start getting real similar things. And to me, I think the top 1000 little nouns. And in fact, I went in early and spent three ETH on like a top 100 on a first 100, just like, I was like, well, nice I one. Of these, you know, <clears throat> nice, nice. How many, how many do you have today? Little nouns? I think I have 39. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I talk about this a lot, but like part of my history is that I collected a full Larva Lab set minus an alien, mm. damn it. And um, I like to collect sets. And so I have this new, and I, you know, I have 
forever to do it, so no rush. But I have this new desire to collect one of every head type of little nodes. And so I think that's 236, I think, something like that. Okay. So I have a long way to go. But uh, right. I can take my time and, and you know, the markets will go up and down and I'll be sitting there trying to collect all those too. Well, uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty hooked on mine, so stay away. Um, <laughs> I wanna I wanna talk about uh, I wanna talk about art blocks first of all, but you've also been featured across many different podcasts talking about art blocks and how you guys started. So I wanna do things a little bit differently, Eric. I would kind of like consider you in the category of I don't wanna say people that aren't supposed to be here, but the background <laughs> is super interesting. Okay, and the only reason I bring this up is so let me compare you to a couple other guests that I've had that I've interviewed. Okay, so. Kane Warwick of Synthetics and Alex Svanovic of Nansen, they used to work at Guitar Center. Stanley Kulichov built Ave while studying his master thesis. And you were working at a tile shop called Lenofa <laughs> Tiles for nearly 19 years before transitioning into art blocks. I find your background fascinating. Can you tell me more about it and how you sort of made your switch from a president of a yeah. tile importer to starting art blocks? Well, um, let's see here. I've always been a nerd at heart. When I started the tile company, um, you know, it was kind of a, it was a result of my dad having been in the ceramics tile business before. So I didn't actually just dive into tile. Like if I, you know, in fact, when I was growing up, I was like, I want to design cars. Tile was not actually the most exciting thing to dive into. I then became incredibly passionate about tile when I realized there's a lot more to it than what you see at Home Depot. Um, and, and, you know, we it, it just in, in the tendency of being very passionate about what I do and just like, you know, also being empathetic to what people want, um, I became a thought leader in the tile world. And that's something that was very special to me. But um, it's it's interesting because I've always wanted to have a voice and have a platform um, outside of my just my local community. And it's really beautiful to see how, you know, same amount of passion and effort can get you to a level where you can actually speak to a significantly larger audience. And um, there's a lot of similarities into, you know, when I started my tile business, the concept of a porcelain tile was like, why would I pay more for porcelain tile than for a natural stone? Because natural, everybody wanted marble and granite. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was on this really interesting mission to explain a new technology in ceramic tile and why it was better than the previous technology against all um, preconceived notions of what the technology had to do. And yeah, it's not tech, but it, right. it was very innovative. And it's, it, I find myself like 19, 20 years later, kind of in the same boat again, you know, trying to educate people on innovation and how it will eventually, I think, replace the status quo. Um, you know, to this day, people still purchase ceramic tile, but uh, it's a lot more common, especially kind of in the higher end world um, to purchase a porcelain tile because it's a more durable product, period. So what would you say the similarities are between operating a tile uh, importer to now running art blocks? What, what are the similarities and differences maybe between both? Uh, yeah, because similarities are that I sit down at a desk. Um, okay, solid. That's about <laughs> it. Everything else is pretty different. Uh, first of all, we're all remote at art blocks. Uh, there's, I think, six people now in Houston, which is where I am, but... Uh, we all still work out of our homes or other offices. We still don't work all together. In fact, the other day I went to work at WeWork and had just such a good time. I, I actually consume the $29 worth of the WeWork daily pass in kombucha and sparkling water. And, nice. Um, I, nice. I, 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 I could just live there if, if they'd let me. Um, but no, we all work remotely. And uh, whereas uh, 
the tile company, we all worked in the same building or buildings, two buildings if we had, once we separated hmm. into a showroom and a warehouse. Um, supply chain, it's very different uh, in the tile world. In the blockchain? In, in the really? Blockchain. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it's interesting because our supply chain is now humans, right? Um, you know, like if you really need to kind of like turn this into uh, bits and pieces here, it's like, you know, our supply chain comes from the brilliance of an artist. And even though that brilliance was important in the tile world because they had designed really good tiles, ultimately it was the physical good that kept us in business. And here it's not the physical good, although NFTs are kind of this physical ethereal good. It's the passion that artists have for art and for generative art and then also the collectors um, that keeps us going. And it's been um, a very different, very different experience. You know, there was a, there was a moment last year that, you know, Artblocks as an organization generated more profit uh, in, um, I think, 30 minutes than the tile company had generated in 10 years. And while wow. that was not something that we ever planned on or counted on or thought was going to be normal, like there was this moment in my mind where I was like, oh, man, like, yes, of course, I'm very passionate about tile and what I've built here. But like, there's something feel irresponsible feeling about not pursuing this and not because of the money, but just the sheer like orders of magnitude of intensity and difference between the two. Plus I've always been a nerd for technology, for code and for um, um, blockchain stuff. And it just really, it has come to me getting to pursue my passions and it's been, it's been really fun. But I'm still not convinced. Like how, how did you make the transition? Like they're two completely different things. The only, the only main thing that sort of pops out to me that's incredibly similar is the logo of art blocks is, is the squiggle. And when you go to the, the website, the first sort of design that you see is the Chromie, right? And I felt like that was like, that was very, very, very fun and obviously very intentional, right? Or was it not intentional? Yeah, yeah. so I designed a tile collection called Chromie. You know, I designed this tile collection with 22 bright colors. And what's interesting is that there's plenty of tile collections with bright colors, but they always had like a beige and a brown and a mauve. And like, I actually built a collection that was strictly 22 fully saturated colors within the limitations of what tile can do, because there's actually some limitations mm -hmm. in what you can do with ceramics. And then six or five or six, can't remember, grayscale tones, just white to black and the colors in between. And that was something that, you know, I've always been very passionate yeah. about color and about graphic, um, you know, installations. So um, Chromie was the name of a collection and it was also the name of this like NFT that I gifted 2000 of my interior designers in 2018. Um, they had to claim them, 14 of them claimed them. And then in 2021, I, I airdropped them, each of the people that actually claimed one, an actual Chromie Squiggle. Mind you, they were still only $10. So it wasn't like I was gifting someone some massive thing. Like I was gifting right. them a $10 thing. Just kind of following through with my original comp, you know, like commitment. Um, yeah, it's uh, very different. Uh, and the transition, actually, I would say that there's one main point of transition, which is COVID. Um, you know, in COVID... I found myself with extra time. You know, I have, I have two children and they consumed my time. And so did traffic and the gym, which I have a lot of debt uh, towards the gym <laughs> to pay back. You know, sitting in a chair for 90 hours a week uh, has done nothing for that. Uh, but, you know, between the traffic and the gym and not going into the office and, um, you know, also just things calmed down during COVID. There was no showroom. There, we didn't come in for three right. months. It was just shut down. 
I found myself with extra time and that extra time that I had never had. And in my life, I've never, I've never been like a very wealthy person. I've, I've lived very satisfied within, within my means. And what I've always found to be the most valuable thing in life is time, period. Like there's just no amount of money that can buy you the amount of time that it takes to really follow a passion or whatever. And I just never had that time. And so COVID mm. bought me that time. And during that time, I degened into Top Shot for three months mm. uh, to a point of like, true degeneracy. And also I learned how to code and, uh, write JavaScript and node and, um, react, uh, code so that I'd be able to launch Artbox. So it was, a uh, it was a really, uh, beautiful wow. thing. And then like, as, as COVID started to lift, I spent more time at the showroom, but Artbox was starting to grow and it growed very quickly, but also kind of organically. Like it just, I knew that I was going to be unable to keep up with the tile world if Artbox continued to grow. There was no guarantee that it was going to continue to go. I had a couple in investors early on that were like, I'm not investing in Artbox because you're not quitting your job. And I'm like, okay, dude, like I've spent 19 years and I have a team of 15 employees and you're, you're like going to make me quit my job because right. you have some vision of what a founder should or should not be doing in this space. Like, come on. Um, but yeah, little by little, it just became very clear. And uh, eventually, I still am here. I'm in the tile business now. I come. There's a conference room in the back that I have taken over with. Uh, uh, just I come in every morning. I close myself in what is a pretty like dark cave uh, with one window that's pretty high up. But I'm surrounded by beautiful art uh, that people send me, and um, I work. I work out of here. So I'm still here. I'm still like a presence in the business. I still wave at people in the window when they come by and they say hello. And um, but my my Engagement with a tile company is, I'd say, down to about one hour a week. Oh wow! How how old are your kids? Are they like are they managing the business now, or did you completely automate it to other employees? Because it's a family business, so like, what, damn, dude, what am extent? I that am I that old looking? Holy crap! Um, yeah, no, no. <laughs> my kids are four and six, and okay. uh, they would probably love to manage the tile business. Um, but uh, no, no, no. So uh, one of the people that I worked with in the tile business um, kind of recognized what was happening. And uh, just one day we were having this meeting and he gave me this proposal for him to take over as CEO. And mm. he just wrote down this list of what his duties would be. And, and I was like, holy shit, like, yes. And it, I, it's hard to see picture what the tile business would be like if I had done that. I mean, we have a wonderful team and they all know what they're doing, but um, you know, they're, they're like, I was the leader of the team and, you know, not having that kind of, yeah. sense of leadership would have been, uh, I mean, it would have been fine. Businesses are hardier than you might think. I mean, it was a, it was a consistently, um, healthy business. So it's not, you know, COVID hit us really hard, but if, if a business is pretty stable and hardy, um, and st like it can survive some stuff. And so I'm sure that it wouldn't have like fallen apart if I had just, had to transition sooner, but having, um, the CEO step in really kind of gave it some, some direction and you know, kept it, kept it going. Can you talk about, uh, you learning how to code and then starting art blocks? I think that's such a, a fascinating story, um, that I actually didn't quite find online. I have, I have difficulties. Like I, for the longest time have been trying to teach myself how to, how to write code and try to bring my ideas to life. I ended up just working with other people and making friends with other people, right. That, kind of like complement these skills, but you kind of took it upon yourself to do the heavy lifting and, and teach yourself. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's various stages of that. Stage one. Um, I don't remember what age I was. I think it was nine, 
10, um, I, my, my dad bought me a, uh, so a long time ago on windows systems, there was a coding language that was built in called Q basic, which is just a very old, like programming language. It eventually turned okay. into visual basic, which is still kind of used today. And he bought me this book for Q basic, uh, or maybe I heard about it in school. I don't know. And back then there was no copy paste cause there was no like internet. And so I would copy like line by line. I would just copy the text in the book into the computer console. And when you do that over hundreds of lines of code, you inevitably make a mistake. So then you have to go find the mistake by reading the error messages. And that's actually how I learned the basic, basic, like root concept of coding. Um, later in life, uh, so I just kind of tinkered with it. I, always, I was always the nerd with the graphing calculator, being like, play my um, choose your own adventure game that I had written, mm -hmm. which is pretty straightforward because there was templates. <laughs> Later in life, uh, when I got uh, Windows for the first time, there was this software called uh, uh, Visual Basic, which is like QBasic for Windows. And um, I learned how to use it, and I got really excited about it. And I learned, I wrote a thing to, to like pick lottery numbers. And then um, I was really into beepers, even though nobody ever beeped me because I didn't really have any friends. Uh, and so I wrote an app that, and I also didn't have a schedule because I was in like middle school and high school. But I wrote an, an app on my computer that would, you would, in the morning, you would list the things that you had to do. And then like it would beep you throughout the day with the number. And then on the back of the beeper, you printed out your list of things to do. And you're like, oh, I need to pick up groceries this is like 13 year old Eric, like really living a fantasy of like <laughs> the, the need for technology. Um, but I wrote this thing and it worked and it worked well. And I was like, Oh man. Okay. Like I, I got really comfortable with code at that point. I didn't touch it again until probably I was 30 years old. And that's when I um, started tinkering with creative coding, which is coding with the intention of creating a visual output, something that had mm. never crossed my mind before. And I started tinkering with that, really enjoyed that process, like really loved the ability to, and, you know, as you, you might've heard me say in other um, sources, like I often find myself in life trying to create something that doesn't exist because a lot of the things that I want in this world don't exist. And coding to me is just this like magical portal because, okay, I can't necessarily make an iPhone case that doesn't exist. Although now we have 3d printers, maybe we can do stuff, but with code, if there's something you want to exist, that doesn't exist, you can make it as long as it can be executed using code. And there's right. the sky's the limit to what you can do with that. And that's always been like really kind of mind blowing to me. Um, still, I would say total hobby enthusiast level of coding um, until COVID hit. And that's when I started, there was a, there's a website called codecademy.com. It's like 39 bucks a month, got you hundreds of tutorials. And I just went through the ones that were pertinent to what I needed, the full stack that I needed to learn and just dove right in. And, and it took hours. I mean, I, I went through the basic JavaScript course, which is a two-part course twice in a row. And that's something that I suggest to people that want to learn how to code. You can't do it once because your brain just doesn't register it. But if you do it twice in a row, which is like 80 hours, which just takes, I don't know, maybe like four to six weeks of consistent every night coding, you come out of that with a pretty good understanding of how to code. And that's how I got to the point where I could write um, not just like the Chrome Squiggle code, but the entire Rplux uh, code. Do you ever just like take a minute and just think about that, <laughs> like that entire journey? Like that's that's no joke. Like you say it like it's some easy thing, but that's that's quite a journey. And then from from kind of like imagining this thing that you wanted to create to then learning how to code to then creating it and then seeing the success that it's at today, right? While still sitting in the office of the tile shop that has sort of like supported you for for nearly 19 years. Like, do you ever do you ever reflect on your journey? 
and so, kind of be like, well, here I am. Like, how the hell did I get here? Oftentimes I'm traveling too much and too busy to reflect. And, and it's a kind of a problem. And this is why mental health is such an important issue in our space, right? Like sometimes it doesn't feel real. And, uh, you know, lately I've been kind of taking some calls a bit more consistently because I spent five weeks where I didn't have a full work week in my office. I actually spent like almost six months with the exception of maybe two or three weeks scattered in that I didn't actually spend five full days in the office, right? I, I traveled so much and you get back and all you do is like, yes, you're excited, but you're also kind of pitying yourself, which is really kind of weird. Like all you want to see is your children when you leave and then you get to where you're going and then you're partying and having a good time, like having drinks and talking nerd talk with all the nerds that are in the space, which is like right. the most exciting thing I can think of in the world. And then you get back and all you want to do is just spend time with your family. And it's like this endless cycle within nine hours with the phone calls a day and, you know, two or three podcasts a week, sometimes more, sometimes less. So it's sometimes hard to find the time to reflect, but when you do, it's just like, and there's this moment, actually, um, you know, I think my wife thought that I was having like a heart attack or something. Like uh, we were in New York during NFT week and our blocks through this party at uh, Samsung's headquarters. And we had a surprise DJ. It was Toro Iwa, which is, you know, just like one of the, I, I think one of the best music producers in the world. And um, we didn't tell anybody. And <clears throat> I had forgotten that we had made thousands of squiggle balloons. And there was just this moment where I was like on this, like kind of a bleacher setup, watching Toro Iwa with like, incredible artworks pieces in the highest possible resolution because it was a three-story screen um, with like surrounded by not just my wife who came this time because I was, I don't always get to travel with my wife, but also with a lot of friends and all my coworkers and collectors and artists. And then these fucking squiggle balloons start coming out of the ceiling. And I literally just kind of lost it for a second. And I was just like, what? And she's like, are you okay? And I'm just like, I, I, I couldn't like process it. So those are the moments. Yeah. That you look back and reflect and you're like, Holy shit. Like, what is, what is this? And, um, I'm very grateful for, you know, everything that's happened and I'm very excited, uh, for everything that's coming. I think we have some really fun stuff planned and, um, I feel validated, you know, uh, I, I, I'm not, I'm not one that's always, I'm not one that's driven by money and I'm not one that's driven by financial things. I've always been happy in my, in my place. And, but I am driven by validation because when like for every eye roll, it like accumulates like this kind of need for validation. Every time someone rolls their eyes, when you're like, like when I give somebody a crypto punk for their kids being born, you know, it was like 20 bucks and I give them in a frame and I'd be like, don't lose that because there's a piece of paper inside that's worth 20 bucks or 30 bucks. And you know that they were like, thank you very much. And turned around and like rolled their eyes and were like, this guy's totally nuts. You know, like those things accumulate over time. And really there's no amount of money in the world that like would necessarily like make that taste better or not. But like when, when, when then you see people react to the product market fit, to the product, to the concept, to the technology, to the art, that is what it's all about, man. And it's really rewarding. And, um, you know, yeah, I'm, I have this like incredible, uh, just, I'm very incredible, grateful for the people that I get to work with every day and um, artists, collectors, and, and, and my team. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's crazy. What's up, guys? Sorry for the quick pause, but I wanted to tell you about Bello, a new blockchain analytics tool I built that helps Web3 native creators and communities learn more about their collectors and their on-chain behavior. 
Through a simple search, Bellows Intelligence can help you figure out a price for your NFT drop, show you what other communities your collectors are a part of, and empower you with insights to make confident decisions on how to grow your community. I built Bello with you in mind. So as a creator myself, Bello has helped me make money by finding sponsors for the podcast and allowed me to curate better content for you guys. And now it's ready to help other creators too. If you're a Web3 native creator, NFT project founder, or community manager, join the waitlist to try Bello's beta product today by signing up at bello.lol forward slash join. That's B-E-L-L-O dot L-O-L forward slash join. All right, back to the episode. So when, when you do look back and you take a moment to look back, what are some actions or decisions you would argue were pivotal to making Artblocks the brand and destination that it is today? I think, I think there's a couple really important ones. I think one is not chaining, not chasing the shiny things. It is so easy in this space to be derailed by chasing the oh shiny stuff. And, um, you know, whether it's utility or tokens or DeFi or staking NFTs or whatever it might be, all those things are brilliant. Like I am actually a huge fan of the technology and every little tiny thing that comes with it. But I started Artblocks as a hobby using tools that came out of the Ethereum tool chest and those are the things that got Artbox its initial success. And those are the things that I made an early decision to continue to pursue no matter what. And one of those is buying art for the sake of art itself. I assure you that very few people that bought CryptoPunks bought CryptoPunks because they thought they'd be worth a lot of money in the future. And I don't think that a lot of artists early on, especially with Artbox released in artworks thinking it would change their lives. Um, dozens of artists have now quit their jobs because they have been so successful with our blocks and that brings an insane amount of joy, but bringing just like being laser focused on like, you know, we started this art for the sake of art itself. People can take their NFTs, speculate all they want, do whatever they want with them. It's actually irrelevant to what we're doing. Oftentimes we'd be accused. to not caring about the secondary market. It's like, of course we care about our artists careers. Like, of course we want artists to be successful, but like we're here as a platform to help people deploy, distribute art in a way that didn't exist before. And it's hard work. It was overwhelming at times. And that is where we needed to concentrate our time. Then, you know, as with any platform, you start seeing stagnation. Like our box hasn't done anything new lately. We haven't made any announcements. Where's the roadmap? And it's so easy to get carried away wanting to, announce some of these like big initiatives that we have. But in my, in my mind, a lot of the detriment to the space is when you make huge announcements and then like it's deflationary when people receive the actual physical or digital good that you announce because it's, it's rarely as exciting as your fantasy creates it to be. Right. You know, because your NFTs don't go up in value or because you don't get some free thing in the mail or whatever it might be. Right. And so, you know, during, um, I think the second thing that's just so important um, for our blocks in, in this, in this trajectory, it's like, you know, in uh, August, September, October, we were making a bunch of money and people were like, what are you doing with all that money? You greedy fools. Like, you know, quit taking from us. And I'm just like, we're just, we haven't actually changed anything. We're just releasing projects every week and they continue to sell. And, um, and, and then when things slowed down, we didn't change things either that we, we started curating more, which is very important. Something I never wanted to do. 
I always wanted our box to be an open platform. But then you start seeing some just incredible fine works of art that are on our platform and concerned about whether the artist wants that to live next to something that is less effort, less intent, less, um, you know, deep, not less work because great art can be very simple, but um, less deep. And we started to curate more and we started to get a lot more effective with our curation, which I think is helpless in the end. But what, what I want to highlight, I guess, here is that um, we, for about six months, didn't make very, made very few other than like bug improvements and like, you know, functional improvements to our back end, which is not very visible to the front end improvements to our plots and said, look, we are, we are looking in now. Once we had the explosion, August, September, October, the team grew from four people to 24 people in like four months. Like that is not a functional way to like get to know coordinators right. and we're all remote. And I think people on the other side look at that and they're like, oh, it's because you have all this money. And it's like, thank goodness we have this money so we can hire more people so we can make the product that you're consuming better. It's not like, I mean, no, nobody's actually taking home like revenue from our blocks. Like we're all getting salaries. Of course, we're growing the team. We're all working within salary um, expectations that would be normal for the space. And in the end, we have been working hard on what I consider to be like a pretty epic next three months for Artbox, which is all of those things that we did internally facing helped us build a really fantastic team that has now tasked ourselves with a pretty massive endeavor for the end of this year, starting with the curation board, which we just announced last week, um, something that took yeah. six months that we got a lot of, uh, you know, frustrations from our Problem community. Problem was right? really challenging, really challenging to do that. It, it, it has, if you look at the, how thorough it was, but then at the same time, I even remember like our community would be like, dude, it's been three months. You've been talking about this forever. And I would come back to the team and be like, okay, we need to give them something because I know y'all are working on it, but like it, it, in this taste of transparency, it's hard to communicate that. And then when I saw the curation board announcement, and I saw a thorough bio for like 20 people, one of the most gender diverse groups. In fact, I think almost like heavy on women participants, which is just rare in our space and rare in uh, also like in a lot of a lot of sectors of the art world. And then like just the thought that went into it, there's a charter now, if you miss this amount, you're out. If you know this charter for like community curation, where we're gonna let people that are from the community come in and, and, and take Temporary seats. I don't know if it's to be three months or six months. I don't even know how we're going to pick these people. We want to make it fair. It's hard to be fair in a centralized space. Um, I was like, okay, that was worth the six months. Even I got anxious and I saw it and I was like, that was worth the six months. <clears throat> we have contract improvements coming up. We're going to, um, we're, we're going to release the next version of the art blocks contract, which is something that we've been working towards for a really long time. New minting strategies. If I have my way, we'll have a noun style mentor for art blocks and maybe 50 of the remaining squiggles will be minted in a noun style auction one per day with it being revealed and then people bidding on it. And hopefully that will generate an insane amount of money for charity because I fully believe that like a lot of the values that are being exchanged in the space are superfluous to like what a human needs to survive. And so, you know, I would, designate a significant portion of those things to go to charity. Um, you know, we have uh, uh, a new website kind of over oh, like reconfiguration mm -hmm. of our website, reconfiguration of, you know, thinking about how the collections are going to be preserved and thought for moving forward and how the series work and how curated looks and what we call the things we have a, we have a, 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 a couple little treats that we have for the community. Nothing like 
Moonbirds for proof. Like that was epic, right? Like nothing like that. Like, but something sweet that we want to say thanks to the people that are supporting us and that have been part of this community. And um, uh, our Marfa party in November is on November 11th. We are all meeting in the middle of nowhere, Texas. We have uh, over 400 people RSVP'd, which will probably end up being 500 RSVP'd by the end of the thing. Last year we had 300. We expected 100. Um, that has wow. become kind of this like pilgrimage to the desert where a bunch of people just nerd out about generative art and NFTs. Um, I fully expect it to be a more diverse crowd than before because we've made efforts to try to be more accessible to like a bigger group of people. Um, you know, there's, there's some treats in, in store for people that come to that, you know, and ultimately what's going to happen is I, I think at the end of 2022 and entering into 2023, it will be very apparent where 35 to 40, depending on what timeline you have, people have been spending their time for the last year. And it's so easy to be sitting on the other side of Discord and being like, man, where is everybody? What is everybody doing? And it, I'm just so proud that without a doubt, it will be clear what we've been spending our time on. What It's not even we. Like, I, I get to, like, hear all these things. This team of incredible people that I work with are just really busting their butts to, like, make this thing. Sure. As, as like the best platform that could, it could ever be in the world. And uh, I think we're doing a good job of it. I'm really proud. We have a, a new announcement next week for our uh, Artblocks uh, enterprise stuff. So it's like really exciting news cool. there. We're working with some really crazy partners um, that you know I can't discuss, but like some really cool stuff is being, is, is being created for people that want to reach their audiences in a, with this product market fit or generative distribution technology. Um, yeah, I don't know. A lot, a lot happening. A I lot can see, on. I can see the fire yeah. in your eyes. I feel it. I really, really feel the way you're moving your hands. It's so fun to watch. <laughs> I, I think what's also cool, Eric, about about your story, and also this this pertains back to your experience in the tile business, is there was a certain level of taste making required to sort of spin up art blocks. And I can't help but wonder, like, the level of taste making that's required to sort of operate a niche style business, a tile business, where you import tiles from Italy and Spain. And the quality that you look for when importing tiles, specific tiles, and how that sort of translates to the early days of art blocks of finding the first few artists to sort of mint on the site and to encapsulate the vision of what you saw in mind well, for art, I mean, art blocks. I'm trying to, I'm trying to I find was, the connection. I, I thought we wouldn't even find artists at the beginning. So, I mean, at the beginning, it was really like if you were willing to like respond to a tweet, you were on art blocks. So, to be fair, initial curation was pretty pretty low um in in terms of like me making selections and i was just very lucky to get to work with really awesome artists up front like it could have been right. detrimental but what's really cool is that you know obviously like generating a bunch of money for artists like peaked interest by a lot of other people and some people may not have been artists or they were coders that became creative which is great or they're people from scratch they're like inspired to create with code but that wave of projects that were submitted didn't come until later so the people that were like saw the success of the first few weeks of art blocks, or even the first week of art blocks, were already creative coders. They were already people that knew how to do this and ready and were ready to go pretty quickly after that. And so there wasn't a need for a curation because the people that were interested in participating were already in the space. I am cursed with like the fact that I actually can sense the difference between like how a 
uh, turn blinker works on a car that was made in Europe versus a car that was made in the United States. You know, like the, for me, <laughs> quality and like sense and touch and feel is very applicable in the ceramic tile world, but it's also very applicable in this space, not the actual physical mm. touch, but like the overall immersion of the experience. And, you know, what we, we have a, we have a, a team member that, you know, we, we talk about like what, we don't really care that much about titles and it's like, you know, is there such thing as a chief product officer at Artblocks? And it's like, well, it's actually more like a chief experience officer because in this space, product is a sub category of experience. It's part of the experience and part of the experience is also the community. There is no product without the community and there's no community without the product. And that's not always the case in a lot of places. I'm a huge nerd for like 1990s BMWs, right? Like $2,000, $3,000 like BMW E30s. Um, I don't wear a hat with a BMW logo on it. And I don't join, <laughs> like I have been a member of like some autocross stuff, but like I don't convive within like the BMW right. community, even though I'm a huge member of that. So I think there's a world where product in and of itself lived and succeeded because it was a damn good product. In this case, that is not, that does not work in Web3. That is actually part of the ethos of Web3. And so exploring what that means, what quality, what palpable quality is, not in a physical blinker on a car, but like in something you can't touch, it's just pixels on the screen. It's, it's really special. And, you know, our team is doing a really good job of figuring that out. So it is very special and it's very difficult to curate. And I want to go back to the curation board that was recently announced, right? How did that come about? How were participants selected? Um, and on top of that, how do you sort of establish fairness in a decentralized manner? The curation board initially came out, um, out of pure cowardice on my part to not be able to say no to somebody. So what happened is our buck started kind of growing with recognition <laughs> and people that. started submitting stuff that I was like, I don't know, like I am, I, I want to be. A, a champion for generative art. I want to be um, someone that supports artists and supports careers. And um, all of a sudden I was having to make a decision whether I wanted to see something on the platform or not. And when I didn't want to see it on the platform, it felt like, I don't know, it just felt wrong, even though it was meant to be this open platform. But then, you know, in some cases I got this weird cash grab vibe from projects that were being submitted thinking, no, this project doesn't belong here. Like, and, and now I'm making a judgment call on somebody because maybe they reached out because they saw something sell out. It, a lot of artists that I had approached before um, starting Artblocks um, really started coming around to Artblocks when it started, you know, selling out projects, which is great because it you know, gives artists a lot of credibility and a lot of, not credibility, like a lot of the, um, the exposure that they deserve for making this work for a long time. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that had not been creating in this space for a long time. And I think they saw an opportunity and I didn't have the courage to like say no. And so I early on, uh, you know, at this point, Jeff uh, was still working with me contract, which God, I don't know what our box would be today if it wasn't for Jeff. Um, and I, I just remember being like, yeah, we need to, we need to come up with a board of a group of people that can make these decisions as to what we're going to put on the platform and what we're not going to put on the platform. And, um, I remember the first project we said no to is actually a project that I really like. And to this day, I still kind of, I think looking back, it would actually be kind of a successful project from a bit more of a meme ish perspective, but it, it, it was one of the, and, and, but the fact that I didn't have to say no, or I wasn't the one making the decision made me at least feel better about being, I, I didn't want artists to try to butter me up. 
I wanted to be able to like kind of maintain separation between what was on the platform and then my passion for generative art. And it's really hard to like be a supporter and an advocate for an artist and also tell them at the same time, sorry, you like, I'm all into generative art, but you can't put your stuff on my platform. Like it just didn't feel right. So that, that's where the curation board started. And originally it was just a very small group of people initially from the art world, which is nice. I mean, we did mm-hmm. have some people from the art world. Jess Pfeiffer has been on the curatorial board for a while. And, um, and then, um, uh, some NFT collectors. And, you know, one of the things that we made out of a request or a demand for transparency is that we asked anyone that wanted to be on the curator board to have to be doxxed. And because we are beholden now to these curators and saying these are the people that are determining the future of what art blocks looks like in terms of generative art. Right. And we felt that these people should be willing to kind of be humans, like be people that can be, you know, so that we, we, we unfortunately lost a couple of curators for that reason. Um, cause a lot of people were early participants in the, in the art blocks ecosystem. Um, and yeah, so now the curation board is composed of people from the museum world, from the NFT world, from the traditional art world, artists, collectors, um, investors, and, um, just total rant. We have a couple people that are just kind of random that we just love their input that they give because they're not coming at it. Like one of, I, I, you know, I I wouldn't call this a random person, but this is a person, there's one person that is an interior designer and God, one of my favorite interior designers in the world and everything that he's ever created in interior design is a space that I want to, I want to be in. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, I want guidance from this person too, right? Like I want to know what gets them excited. And this is why you have so many votes and you have a scoring system because one person can be wrong or right and also kind of be outvoted. And I think there's a, there's a lot of beauty in like a democratized process in my, in my original dream of the curatorial board, there would be some kind of like L2 or some kind of cheap, uh, transparent voting mechanism. And, you know, I think that you could take it pretty far with governance one day where you could say, okay, if you vote, yes, you have to buy the NFT. If you vote, no, you don't have to buy it. But then if there's like, you know, Mm. gas war, like you kind of, have to participate in the gas war but if you vote yes you got to put your money where your mouth is and it's not fair because it gets expensive now but i mean just ideally there are mechanisms that can be transparent you don't even have to know who the curator is you can just have like an anonymous address that's like voting yes or no but but having right. those people make decisions that are then you know based Impactful. on how much they like their project if yeah. you're not going to mint it if you're not going to mint it regardless of price obviously if the price is high you may want to mint it, but you can't early on, everything was 0.1 ETH. So it wasn't like, if you weren't willing to spend 0.1 ETH on a project, um, then you probably shouldn't have put it through to curation. Right. And the idea is that if you do put people put their money where their mouth is, the best projects are the ones that go through that's changed. Obviously we don't force anybody to buy anything and we don't want anyone to feel forced to buy anything. But, um, the people that are part of that curatorial board have been just so instrumental for what our blocks is today. They're shaping, they're shaping what, we are putting out as, you know, our focus is to put out some of the best generative art in the world, you know, and drop the word generative. Like we want to release some of the best art in the world. Right. They're the ones making those decisions as to what we're calling curated, which means what is pushing the boundaries of what um, art and generative art can do. And I think, you know, look back in 10 years, let's say if NFTs are still around or our blocks is still around, which I fully intend for it to be, you're going to, you might be able to point, to like specific pivotal decisions of curation board, curating right. some projects, not curating others, and kind of like causing a certain particular style to be adopted or appreciated or excited um, 
in this space. So yeah, we'll see where that goes. I mean, we're still we'll in the year it. two. So year two of the curation board, right? Or year two of Art Block. How, how long has the curation board been in place? I think uh, January, roughly January 2021. Uh, so okay. like a couple months after launching. So we'll start year two on in January 2020. I think I, can't, I honestly can't remember how long it's been. So this next question comes from, uh, from from Dan on Twitter, but he basically asks, how often will the curation board be changed? So the main part of the curation board, which is the ones that are uh, people that were vetted from their background. So art history mm -hmm. people, people from the traditional art world, contemporary art world, you know, uh, I believe that those people, there is like a, there is a sense of like waning interest that happens with anything that you become a part of. And so some people don't get tired of voting and they will probably remain on the curation board for a really long time. Uh, as we saw, as we saw with the first group, like we had some people that were really active at the beginning and they kind of waned. And this is why we created, gosh, like a pretty hardcore charter for the curation board, which is um, a list of things that you have to do, agree to not, you know, um, trade NFTs that you have voted on or, or buy art from artists that you know, you know, like commitments to be part of the board. And I think that the people that are the most committed are going to um, stick around for a long time and then others will probably kind of fall off. So we have um, a list of, I think another 10 people that we've identified that we really would like to be part of the curatorial board. And uh, we're just kind of waiting to see kind of how the initial set goes. Then we have um, the community seats and the community seats, you know, I love our community and the first people that sit on the community seats, what I'm about to say probably would not apply to maybe for the first 10 or 15 people that sit on that community seat. But when in 2021, when I was being yelled at by a bunch of board APFPs in the Artblocks Discord about not knowing what I was doing or being a money grab or ignoring or picking the wrong projects or whatever, uh, I think that if you had picked a significant amount of those people for the curatorial board, that Artblocks would have been curating PFPs, literally, like mm -hmm. just like right. cartoon PFPs, right. which there's nothing wrong with. And like one example, I, I recently got to speak on a panel with All Seeing Seneca, who created the Board Apes. And after having met her, it gave me a totally different view of the art behind the Board Apes than what I had originally just kind of dreamed up in my head of what it was. So, you know, I do think that there can be art in PFPs. And I, um, I, I, it obviously started with CryptoPunks for me, and I thought they were art, not, I didn't even know what a PFP was, right? I just thought it was like a really cool artwork. So ideally this, you know, this group of community curators is a slightly smaller group um, and one that's rotated only because we have 30,000 holders. We're never gonna get to all of them, but we have hundreds of people in our community that are active participants in the Artbox Discord and like our community, and they deserve a say. They deserve a, a seat. And so we want to rotate through them. I think we're going to have three, maybe four um, okay. rotating seats. I imagine that there's a world where in the future, some community curator has either revealed themselves because a lot of them are anonymous to, to be like the executive director of like the MoMA or something crazy like that. And we're like, oh, right. okay, well, maybe you can have a right. seat. But, you know, <laughs> for now, these people are... Um, very much uh, in tune with the art blocks ecosystem and huge fans of the artists and the, you know, artists are huge fans of them. And I think it'd be really neat to see how they vote um, along the way. Yeah. So I have a uh, one final long form question for you. And then I want to do a, a round of uh, like fire questions based off other 
things that people have asked on Twitter. Okay. So I guess the last final question that I have for you, um, this is more from like a business side and as an entrepreneur yourself, um, as a platform founder, okay. How do you use on-chain data as a way to understand your creators and collectors to sort of create better experiences for them as users? At the moment, we use doing analytics and a couple like pretty awesome dashboards that have been built out for us, but they've been built out in the interim of us eventually hiring um, uh, BI engineers and, and people that really understand data. So um, our COO of our blocks, his name is uh, 0x Houston, or Hugh, is one of them, uh, I mean, I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know if he chuckles when I say this, so maybe he doesn't like it, but I, I, I kind of talk to, talk about him like the cookie monster when it comes to data. He's mm-hmm. just like so excited about like data and <laughs> where we're, you know, and not, not just because obviously as chief operating officer, we have to make sure that we have budgets and whatever, but also he gets like thrilled and excited just viscerally about data. And um, that's, he's not the only one. I mean, our uh, Jeff Davis from the creative team is like, okay, we can use data to determine what the best rate is to release a project or to help artists with their career by giving them the right drop mechanics and stuff. Um, Our our head engineer, our our CTO, Jake um, Rockland, also um, very much excited about data and uh, even even more so maybe um, Director of Engineering Aaron Penne, which is also uh, you know someone that's been in the generative art space for a really long time, uh, approached me about being in the data position at Artbox, you know, controlling data and being involved with data. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's one of those things that you will see in whatever the future of Artbox is, and you know, whatever that future of Artbox is, whether we are aggregating sales listings on our website. I mean, if you consider the fact that like probably 90% of the time that people spend in the Artblox ecosystem is not on artblox.io. Like it's probably scrolling through OpenSea or other marketplaces. And so that kind of data is going to be really important. And we're actually filling one or two roles within Artblox internally in order to be able to actually crunch the data, provide the data and, and really execute on that data. It's something that I think Artblox has fallen behind on not out of choice. We have to prioritize, right? So what's the priority? Make sure right. the back end is durable. Make sure that we hire within a right. corporate culture we're excited about. Um, but now it's time and we are really excited about what that looks like in the future. Amazing. Okay. So some fire round questions. Okay. Um, so we'll make them quick too, because we only have so much time left. All right. So what is your favorite curated collection outside of squiggles, Fidenza and ringers? Oh man, that's not fair. That's not fair, man. Um, I, <laughs> I, 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 I often say that um, one of my favorite artists in Artbox is Alexi Andre because he has a consistent hand, uh, also known as Mac Tweet Tweet. He created a project called Seven Twenty Minutes. Um, I, I remember early on, I was begging people, not begging people, and he, I think, did it on his own accord, but kind of saying, "Okay, look, you're you can run off the system clock. You can actually like utilize system data." And he did this piece called 720 Minutes, which is a clock that ran on system data, but was also this beautiful generative piece. It's always running on an iPad in my in my kitchen as like the clock in my house. And it's just like one of the most beautiful things in the world. But the reason I really like it is because he's built this consistent theme of using tiny little circles to make really beautiful and deep works mm. of art, even outside of curated. He went into the playground and did some really fun stuff uh, with three consecutive collections that all had the same vibe. Um, and I just, I really respect his vision for uh, for what an artist hand looks like in the digital realm, which is okay. really hard to do. Awesome. 
Um, how do you feel about uh, mentors that turn around and instantly list to, to, to flip? Um, you know, at first I, I was like, I would, I was, I would show disdain towards it. Um, but I only showed disdain towards it when those people criticized art blocks for what we were doing. Like there was a lot of criticism that art blocks was not catering to that. And I got a lot of shit for that. Like, you know, I would say things like, we don't care about the secondaries, not because we don't care about the secondaries, but because what was happening is literally, you know, like people would say, let's go back to the gas wars. Why? Because there was no <laughs> price discovery. Like, obviously, when an artist makes 10% of a drop and the miners make 90% of the drop, that doesn't feel good. So we, we implement other methods that the flippers found they were no longer able to immediately 10x on an art blocks drop. And it's unfortunate for the flippers, but we got criticized for that, you know? And so it came, like there was a disdain at the beginning because we would get yelled at for doing something that supported the creator. It also supported art blocks. Like why the hell is the miner making 90% of a drop? Like it just doesn't make any right. sense to me. And so um, the flippers, these, these original people that would yell at us for doing things like this um, kind of became a target within my communications of like saying, we're not doing this for you. And to this day, we are not actually here so that you can profit on an art box artwork immediately. We're doing it for, to create really good art that you want to hang in your house right. and then whatever you do with it, you can do with it. The instant flippability went away the day that we lost the Dutch auctions. Every now and then an artist does a drop with a fixed price and that comes back and the community loves it. I mean, a lot of the people in the community love it. That's great. There's instant profit built in, whatever, but that's not why we're here. And so right. let, everybody should do whatever they want to do. We love the liquidity. We love, that's what keeps our blocks afloat. And that's what keeps artists from having to go get another job. Like, hell yeah, we love it, but that's not why we're here. And please respect that. Like we have built a platform for what we want it to be, not what you want it to be. And as long as we can just kind of respect that, like, you know, I think I don't actually care what people do with their NFTs, as long as they're respectful to the artist and as long as they're respectful to our vision with the platform. That's all I ask. Amazing. What's your personal, uh, personal preference, excuse me, animated or static? That's a good one. I like static. Um, I like static that can be animated. <laughs> okay. Um, All right. Because that, yeah, uh, the squiggle, I love when it's animated, but like it's meant to be a static piece. If I wanted it to be animated, it would have been animated when you open it. Right. Uh, and I like the optionality between the two. Okay. Um, okay. What do you think about FX hash slash the NFTs on Tezos? I love FX hash. Um, I love what they're doing. I love the ethos of their space. I love how they hit the market. You know, a lot of our competitors early on came to the market basically saying, this is this is what our blocks has screwed up, so we're going to do this because we're better. And that type of uh, competition has never really, like, sunk in well with me because it just, it's like, go do your own thing. Everybody, like, go do your thing. Like, everybody can, there's room for everybody in this space. And I, I think that the way FX Hash hit the market um, is this, it, it is a very different, it is a very different product than what our box is from a technical perspective, from the art being on chain perspective, you know, we are limited by the provenance and the, you know, immutability of the Ethereum blockchain because it's more expensive to operate. But then we believe that there's a value proposition for NFTs that are on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so 
the the playground aspect, which actually originally Artbox felt more like a playground. Like Artbox is no longer a playground. You, it is a home for hopefully some of the best generative art in the world. And I think one of my favorite things that's happened in this space is that you know we will get submissions for Artbox with an art with an artist's FX hash portfolio, hmm. and that FX FX hash has not been around long enough to where you see three or four projects they've released on FX hash. You actually see the artistic progression that that artist has gone through. You see the success, you see where they've faltered, you see where they, uh, on this other platform, and you see this moment where they're like, okay, now I'm ready for art blocks. And there's a lot of people that are never gonna come to art blocks because whether it's for sustainability reasons, which is fine because hopefully that'll be changing soon. Plus we've carbon offset significantly more than we've ever consumed. Um, I know a lot of people that doesn't really act as a solution, but I think given our charity, given our carbon offsetting, I think art blocks is a net positive for the world in general, but that's okay because mm -hmm. there's people that are vehemently opposed to like the carbon footprint of the Ethereum blockchain. Again, that's changing soon. But then um, there's also people, there's always gonna be the people that uh, want to go against like the, uh, or not go against, but not participate in like the, the one of the big players. There's always going to be a counterculture. There's always going to be the people that prefer to operate in the grassroots, the indie, the whatever. It's something that I always was driven by indie music. I was always driven by like weird indie art. Like it wasn't, you know, I never really was drawn to the big galleries. So I think there's always going to be people that want to operate outside of kind of like the bigger name platforms. FX hash has now become one of the biggest platforms in the world. And so I bet you that there are now people that are interested in working on in, in, uh, right. in releasing Oregon platforms that are smaller and more indie than FX hash. Right. But I love what FX hash is doing. I think they are a net plus for the ecosystem. Um, I, I, I respect so much the work that's on FX hash and I, I just wish the most success to all of the artists and all the people that run that over a million NFTs have been minted on FX hash y'all like a million Crazy. NFTs. Like my brain wants to explode thinking about that many. And so I just, you know, my heart goes to the people that manage the discord and, and it's, just, <laughs> it's hard work, you know, it's such hard work. So huge props to them. Yeah. All right. Final, final question. Um, how important is having NFTs fully on chain? Uh, I think there's a lot of layers to that question. To me, it's very important. Right. To me, you know, I even kind of went into this deep initiative to put all the crypto punks on chain early on. And, um, you know, I love the nouns concept because they're on chain. I love a lot of these projects that are fully on chain. It's really important to me. The, the reason that it's important to me is because there's provenance, not just in the ownership history, which is how typical IPFS NFTs work, but there's ownership in the variability of the output. So for something where you have like a, um, you know, a squiggle that's a hyper rainbow and that has more value generally because there's, they're scarcer. There's something really important to me about being able to see why that is scarcer. So there is a math computation that happens in the algorithm of the chromie squiggle that says that based on probability, this is going to happen, I think, 1.1% of the time. I can't remember what it was at. To me, that's really important. That provenance of the variability of an output of a generative piece is critical long-term because the whole point of blockchain, the whole point of immutability is that it's going to be around for a long time. So um, the idea that in 10 years, 100 years, you might still be able to recover. And there was a really nice chart the other day, an infographic that put Artblocks in like kind of a recoverable status. Artblocks should be recoverable for eternity. Artblocks artworks should be able to be displayed at their originally intended resolution and by that, I mean the full screen of whatever the screen is in five years, 10 years, or whatever, 
um, because all of the information required to reconstruct that artwork is found either on-chain or in libraries like P5.js, which are more decentralized than Ethereum will ever be because there's millions of computers hosting it. And I guess the other side of it that I think is really important is that, you know, you can't store a 25 megabyte image on chain, but you can store an algorithm that can create a 250 megabyte image on chain. And it's really just taking what is the limitation of the Ethereum blockchain, capturing that limitation into like the purest form of immutability, and then putting art in that form. And when you uh, when we talk about like resolution agnostic mints, it seemed like it was something that we weren't really going to deal with until we had 24K televisions. I used to say this on panels all the time, like one day in the future, we're going to have really big screens and we want to be able to look at something without it having to be upsampled. In New York, we had this three-story screen and artworks on that screen were being displayed in full resolution and it came way earlier than we thought. Like the need to be able to sample something at that high of a scale came 10 years or eight years before I thought it was actually going to be necessary for it to happen. And it was this huge validation for the fact that all of that art is on chain, all of the code is on chain and the execution for that enabled us to be able to project our ringers and a Fidenza and all of these other beautiful works, three stories tall. And that felt really relevant and really important. And so to me, yes, it's very important for art to be on chain, okay. but it does not mean that good art, that good, it has to be on chain to be good art. That is okay. Stupid. Okay. I, I, I have to ask you one last thing. Okay. Uh, because this has sparked a lot of like noise and attention in the music NFT community. How do you feel about auto generated music and like the same concept as in terms of like art blocks for art, but the same concept for music? Are you bullish or bearish on that? I love it. I, um, if you think that programming pixels on a screen is hard, Wait till you start programming like musical notes <laughs> on a staff. We have uh, multiple pieces on Artbox that have been released with generative music inside of them. In fact, our curated drop tomorrow is one that I'm incredibly excited about because you have, uh, you know, I'm old, you know, because my children are probably able to work in the tile <laughs> business. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to like really appreciate 8-bit video games. And we have this drop happening tomorrow that literally has like a nostalgic 8-bit video game or 16-bit video game oh, type cool. music. But it actually just runs for eternity because it's mm. creative. Plus there's a visual by one of our favorite artists in Outbox, um, uh, Rosenthal, that um, is, is in tune with that. And so I think that there's a really beautiful thing for generative music, but I think for generative music to really get love is you're gonna have to have a major musician start to sample some of that music and put it out there mm. and surprise their audiences with the delight of knowing, hey, by the mm. way, this piece came from this Artbox piece, or if there's a generative right. music site only. Um, right. we're, we're working towards releasing new technology that enables uh, generative um, type minting distribution using pre-recorded audio, which would not be on-chain. But what, what it would enable is like musicians to really put entire bodies of work and samples and sounds and extra code uh, in a way that would, yeah, just like really kind of explode and open up what generative music can be. And I think uh, that's kind of necessary. Just like we want to do generative photography stuff and generative like all sorts of stuff, AI, it requires things to be off-chain. And like I said, we want to, we, we love good art, regardless of whether mm -hmm. it's on-chain or not. We just really love the art that's on-chain. So we're going to pursue, um, you know, letting people be creative using this technology as much as Amazing. Eric, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Before Thanks I let you know, me. where can we find yeah. you? Of course, always welcome. Where can we find you? Where can we find Artblocks? Shill it away. Uh, you can find Artblocks, Artblocks underscore IO. Make sure it's just one underscore or one I. Um, lately, there's been a bunch of stuff on Twitter with two underscores, you know, the typical scammy stuff that we see in our space. Um, mm -hmm. Also on Instagram, 
uh, artblocks underscore IO. And then uh, I am art on blockchain on Twitter. I have been off Discord for two and a half months. I do plan a re-entry this week, but I planned it last <laughs> week and it didn't really happen. So maybe this week it'll actually happen. And uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, come to your next NFT event because I find myself at every one of them. So that's another way to see each other. I went to the one at Consensus. It was fun at the at the at the brewery. So maybe I'll see you at another one. Thank cool. you so much. Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to do this again soon. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. What's up, guys? Thank you for listening. If you've gotten this far, then you are a champ, and I owe you a free listener pin. Go to adamlevy.io forward slash NFT. Fill in your info and I'll distribute the NFT towards the end of the season. By collecting your pin, you prove your contribution to the season and get exclusive access to content, allow lists, and more. So be sure to collect yours. Also, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. This helps me out so much. And finally, hit me up on Twitter at LevyChain. I want to hear what you're building, the latest crowdfund you're trying to complete, or if you simply want to chat. I love talking about where crypto meets the creator economy, and it's no different if it's coming from you directly. So thanks again for your support. It means the world, and I'll see you on the next episode.